Well, good evening. How's everyone doing? I was trying to figure out where everybody was tonight, and then I remembered that most of our uh, senior ministry, they are suffering for the Lord in the Caribbean uh, right now on their, their cruise. So we'll, we'll pray for them uh, that they don't get too sunburned. So, but now I'm glad to be here. My name is Devin. I'm one of the associate pastors here. If you don't know who I am, if you're online joining us for the first time. Um, but before we get started, I just wanted to ask, is there any needs in the, in the room? Just signify with a raised hand. Anything going on? If you're online, if you'll just comment and let us know what's going on, we'd love to join with you in prayer. So let's open up in prayer, then we'll jump in. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we have the opportunity to come and learn your word. Father, we don't take that for granted. We know that that is, not, that, is a, that is a privilege that we have here in America that not everyone gets, and I thank you for it, and I pray that you would help us to take full advantage of that and dive into your word tonight. pray that we would have open hearts to receive what you have to tell us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A couple things real quick. This Thursday, we are still having the senior lunch. If you'd like to join, I'm not sure who's all going to be there, to be completely honest. Uh, several will, and that's good. Um, and then this Sunday is our senior, I'm saying senior a lot, but this is a different form of senior. Senior graduates uh, will be, uh, this Sunday, Pastor Mark will be um, honoring those who are graduating uh, from high school, and so they're going to be doing a, a really fun service. You don't want to miss that. I know he has some very fun things planned. So I'm kind of zooming through the first part because I have a lot to talk about tonight. Um, I was asked to continue Pastor Mike's uh, uh, teaching series for Wednesday night called Got Questions, and he asked me to uh, take on the challenge of talking about the reliability of Scripture. And when he asked me that, I said, oh, is that all? Is that all you'd like me to talk about? If you know that that is such a, a large debate right now, a lot of people have issues with the way that the Bible has been handled through the years and whether or not it's true. And so I did take the challenge and I feel like I have a presentation tonight that will be helpful. I would like to preface a little bit by saying that I, my plan is not to come up and preach, but to teach. And there is a difference. I do believe that whenever you preach, you are declaring something. When you teach, you are more or less laying out information for the listener to come to, come to their own conclusions. I will share my opinion, and I probably won't, will end up preaching in certain parts. But my intention is to lay out the details and basically to answer the question, is, this, is, the, is the Bible reliable? And more importantly, is it relevant for today? So, a lot of research, a lot of content. I was able to uh, narrow it down to 16 pages, and that is not a joke. So, we're going to get started. All right. So, is the Bible reliable? Is it relevant for today? So, let me ask this question first, of course, rhetorical. But, why do you believe the Bible? Why do you believe it to be true? I would think that for many of us, the answer would be, well, because it's the Bible. Of course it's true. It's the Word of God. It has to be true, right? That's the conservative answer. I believe it because it's the Word of God. I believe it because uh, that's what the Bible says I should. And before we get started, I want to let you know that my intention is to challenge that view tonight. It sounds like a super spiritual view. It sounds like, well, I'm a very mature Christian, so I don't need anything else but the evidence that the Bible holds within itself. And let's talk about that a little bit tonight. Where do we go whenever we talk about the Bible being the Word of God? Now, as a Bible-believing church, part of the Assemblies of God, if you go to our uh, statement of beliefs, what you're going to find is the very first fundamental truth that we have is that the Bible is inspired. Scripture is inspired, and we will cite the passage of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, training, rebuking, and righteousness. That is our proof text. That is why we, why we make the statement. The word God-breathed is the Greek word theonostos, which means theos, God, nostos, or uh, pneuma, breathe. God-breathed. We believe that God breathed on the text, and that's what we have. We call it the word of God. This is what we could call intermittent validation, or some might call it internal evidence. But I like the term intermittent validation because inside of the text itself, it is validating itself. It is saying that it is the word of God. And that's one of the reasons why we believe it. Now, a lot of people are very happy with that because we believe the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true and the Bible is the word of God. So it must be true. It's God breathed. 
Another way we look at that is to say that Scripture is inspired. Inspired. Have you ever heard that before? The inspired Word of God. What does that mean? If I went, at prob- if I was on this cruise with them, I would prob- probably see some beautiful landscapes. And I might see a beautiful sunrise. And let's say I was inspired by that beautiful sunrise and I took a screenshot or a snapshot. I went home and I painted that sunrise. Now, would that be the sunrise or would it be a representation? My inspiration brought about a representation of what I was inspired by. That is a really good description of what, a, of what impression or inspiration is. Now, contrast that with the word dictation. If I am dictating something to you, if there's a dictation app on my phone, if I picked it up and I said, uh, you know, Siri, dictate this, and she probably will since I said it. Uh, If I said that, then it would begin to write the things that I'm saying word for word exactly the way that I'm saying it. Now, when we talk about the Bible, we are talking uh, differently about inspiration and dictation. They are two separate things. We believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers. He did not dictate to the writers in every sense. Now, what does that mean? What's the difference? I'll give you an example and with dictation. In the Muslim faith, the Quran has been dictated. It was dictated. The belief is that the angel Gabriel dictated the, the, the text to the prophet Muhammad, and he wrote down word for word what the angel had told him. Another example would be Joseph Smith and Mormonism, the Church of Latter-day Saints. He was directed, the belief is that he was directed to some golden tablets. He took those, translated it, and it was word for word what the tablets said. Now, typically, you're talking about one author in a very, very short period of time, very small. Um, Some people would like for the Bible to have been dictated. You know, I don't know if you know this or not, but your nice leather-bound Bible was not the Bible that Jesus had in his hand. This was not the Bible that Paul had in his hand. In fact, this leather-bound Bible was not something that we saw for many, 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 many centuries after Jesus uh, ascended into heaven. It was something that came much later. But we would like to think that Jesus wrote the Bible right? And then he gave it to Paul, and Paul took it down to Thomas Nelson Publishing, and they put it through the printing press and got it, and then we just started handing it out. That would really, really work out well, wouldn't it? Because we would know this is true. We'd have no question about it, but that's not how it works. In fact, we know that it was not dictated for several reasons. There are places where the writers say that God said or an angel said there was dictation there. But most of the time, these are stories being told. It's history being recounted. It's poetry. It's songs. It's different genres. And uh, what we see is there's all kinds of different styles of writing. Whenever the uh, scholars were determining if one book was written by a particular apostle or another, they would look at the style of it and say, okay, this is in the style of, of this particular person, so we know that it's them, or it's not in that particular style, so we know it's not. There's a distinction, there's a personality among the text that differs. There's also genre, there's different types of writing, whereas dictation is usually very just straight line, this is what was said. It is speculated that there were about 40 different authors over a span of 1,600 years. That's a long time. That's a lot of people. A lot of people who didn't know each other. A lot of people who had no clue how their work was going to be used. And probably, well not probably, they didn't write it with any intention of it being collected one day. They wrote it as they felt inspired to do so. Now, if the Bible was simply dictated, there would, be a, there would not be a variety of styles and genres. But there is. So inspiration, a really good way to kind of break that down is that inspiration is that the Holy Spirit moved upon human authors to write the words he wanted written. Now there is kind of a more extreme view and that's called verbal plenary inspiration or full inspiration. And the idea is that every word in the text is exactly the word that God intended to be there. And I think it sounds nice and it sounds really good, but if you're not careful, you'll you'll kind of cross that line where aren't we right back into dictation? If it's every word, then that kind of seems like what, it seems like he dictated it, even if it wasn't quite that direct. It seems like we're talking about dictation at that point, where inspiration is the representation of what they were inspired by. So implications of of inspiration. In this full uh, inspiration view, you will often hear people talk about that scripture is inerrant and infallible. Inerrant and infallible. Have you heard those two words before? You might be surprised to know that those two words never appear in the Bible. 
We're never told that the Bible's inerrant. We're never told that the Bible's infallible. So why do we believe that? We believe it because it flows from, if every word is exactly the word that God intended it to be, then of course it would be without error. Of course it would be unable to fail. A good definition of those two words, inerrant means that there are no errors. Infallible means there could not be errors. And how could there if God inspired word for word exactly how the Bible was going to be? But you might be surprised to know that there are long periods of history in the church that the doctrine of inerrancy did not exist. There are, and in fact, there, it, has been a fact, it has been noted that on, only in the last two centuries can we legitimately speak of a formal doctrine of inerrancy. The first formulations of this doctrine were not established according to the authority of a council, a creed, or a church until after the Reformation period, which was in the 1500s. If we look into church history and we look way, way, way back to some of those who were closest to Jesus' time, a lot of them have very different views of whether there are heirs in Scripture or not. One in particular was Origen of Alexandria. He was a, he was a priest that was around in uh, 185, BC, 185 AD. That means 185 years after Jesus uh, had come. Keep in mind that the last of the apostles most likely died in 99 AD. So this person was very close in proximity to the last of the apostles. He was probably a disciple of a disciple of the original apostles. Very, very close. And he made this statement. He said, let these four gospels agree with each other concerning certain things revealed to them by the Spirit and let them disagree a little concerning other things. The idea is that there are some, some errors, there are some issues there. There's, if you read the Gospels, there are some areas where one of them might give one number and the other one might give another number. And Origen doesn't have an issue with that. Another church father, which he would have been around in uh, 347 to 407 AD, so 300, 400 years after Christ, John uh, Chrysostom was unconcerned with the notion that the scriptures were incongruent with all matters of history that were unimportant to the faith. So he was not really concerned if some of the Old Testament maybe wasn't completely accurate. Because if it didn't impact the gospel, if it didn't impact the faith, he really didn't have much concern for it. Now by the time of the Reformation, there was still no formal doctrine of, er of inerrancy. And so we have people like Martin Luther, uh, who the famous reformer, if you've ever studied uh, what took place with the, with the Protestant Reformation, the church splitting off from the Catholic Church, Martin Luther is a, is a big name. Erasmus, he was the translator of the, of the Greek manuscript that would have been used to translate the uh, King James Version. People like John Calvin, whatever your opinion of him is, he was very influential. Martin Luther said, inspiration does not ensure inerrancy in all details. That was his claim. Erasmus said, nor in my view would I have the authority of the whole scripture be instantly imperiled if someone who wrote the gospels by a slip of memory uh, did put one name for another, Isaiah, uh, instead of Jeremiah, for example. John Calvin said, it is well known that those who wrote the gospels were not very concerned with observing the time sequences. What does that mean? He's saying that when the gospel writers would write about the Old Testament, they weren't really concerned about getting that information correct they were concerned about utilizing it to spread the gospel so the way that these early church fathers handled um, the bible was very different than we do now the way that uh, the way that the apostles handled the old testament is very different than we would handle it now this is what was going on so if you're familiar with the protestant reformation the catholic church which was the the, the large church structure Several years after Jesus ascended into heaven, the apostles set the foundation of the church. And as time went on, the church became more unified and eventually set up camp in, in Rome, Italy, and became the Roman Catholic Church. And anyone at that time, before the Reformation, who was a Christian was a Catholic. That's just the way it went. But several people inside of the church started to feel like the Catholic Church was mishandling things. That they, weren't, they, they were focusing more on tradition and not enough on the scripture itself. And so a large group of people split off from the Catholic Church under protest, which is why we call it the Protestant Reformation. If you're not Catholic, you're Protestant. So Lutheran, Methodist, uh, a lot of these Episcopalian, a lot of these other churches, that's where that originated from. So the uh, Protestant Reformation starts to come into full swing, and the Catholic Church obviously has a problem with that. 
So a lot of what they did in response to the Protestants is they would set up councils to make decisions to say what they're teaching is inaccurate. So we have reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin and some of these others who are making claims about it really doesn't matter if there are errors in the text as long as it doesn't impact the gospel. So the Catholic Church at the Council of Trent in 1545, they developed for the first time formally the doctrine of inerrancy. This was in response to the reformers. This was the statement that they made. There can be no error in scripture, whether it deals with faith or whether it deals with the morals or whether it states something general or common to the whole church or something particular pertaining to one person. They are saying there cannot be error in scripture. This is in response to what the reformers were claiming. Remember, the reformers were making the statement, it's just about the gospel. That's what we're focused on. That's where we are. Now, what began to happen from that time forward, specifically in the 18th and 19th century, prior to that in the 16th century, so right after the Reformation, was what we would call the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was a period of time where people began to question whether religion was something we should look at or not. It was something that should we take it seriously. As science became a, a more of a popular study, they began to realize, huh, maybe a, a, a six-day creation doesn't really make a lot of sense. As people like Charles Darwin began to come into the scene and his theory of evolution took force in education, they began to say, well, we, we, we believe that the earth was uh, created, or not created, it came about much earlier than what the, what the Christians believe. So we deny a six-day creation. Or they might say, well, there's no way that there could have been an earth-wide flood, even though that's what Genesis states. And so they began to challenge these things. Christianity, for the first time at that point, became less about spreading the gospel and more about defending the faith. We didn't evangelize as much as we tried to convince people that what we were saying was true. And we started getting thoughts in our mind that it must all be true in order for some of it to be true. Notice that that's a very big difference from what the early church fathers and the reformers thought. They weren't as worried about it. But now we have someone that we feel like is attacking what we're teaching. We feel the need to kind of put up our our arms and, and get defensive. And that's what's happened to the church. All the way leading into the 20th century, in 1978, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy convened a conference in which they drafted the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. This statement was designed to defend the position of biblical inerrancy against a trend of liberal conceptions of Scripture. Now, they were tired of people coming in and challenging whether or not the Bible was true. So they made a bold statement to say the Bible is inerrant. We believe that it is without errors. But I want to point out a couple things as we read the statement that they made. This is from Article 10. Under the statement... Inerrancy applies only to the original manuscripts, which no longer exist, but which its adherents claim can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. What does that mean? We'll get to that in a moment. The statement also says, inerrancy does not refer to a blind interpretation. History must be treated as history, poetry as poetry, hyperbole and metaphor as hyperbole and metaphor, and so on and so forth. This is the conservative evangelical view that most of us probably grew up with. I know I did. I know I grew up with the idea that everything in the Bible must be 100% true. The history, even if, even if modern science argues it, it must be true. The history must be true. The science must be true. We could use it as a history book. We could use it as a science book. And it has to be interpreted literal. Anybody else in the room that that's kind of how you grew up? Seeing the Bible. It's the word of God. It has to be taken literally. The Bible says it. That settles it, right? I mean, that's just kind of our view. A couple of things I want to point out. Even in the statement, it makes it clear that only the original manuscripts were inspired, and we don't have those. Seems to pose a problem, doesn't it? And even if we did, we should not apply it with blind literalism. We should not just interpret it, oh, well, the Bible says it, so I guess I have to do it. There's different types of literature. We have to look at the history. How should the history be interpreted? How should the poetry be interpreted? That creates some problems. Even the most conservative view of the Bible does not endorse a position that says the Bible says it, that settles it, because the question remains, what does the Bible actually say? Now, that statement was made, and a lot of people from then have kind of even taken it to a further extreme 
I heard it said uh, recently that the Bible's inspired from, from, from Genesis to the maps, right? In the back, the whole thing. The table of context, the index, all of it. It's inspired. It's infallible. It's without error. That's kind of the view. That's the extreme view. Very much in contrast to what the early church fathers and reformers were saying, right? Very different. But that's kind of where we went. I'm going to make a statement today, and I'm going to explain this a little bit. Intermittent validation is not a valid form of validation. So to say, I believe the Bible because it's the word of God, that's called circular reasoning. When you make a claim and you get to the end before you even start, that is called circular reasoning. If I got up here today and I said, I am the greatest communicator in the world. And you'd say, well, based on what? Well, because I said so. Well, that wouldn't hold much water. And you might say, well, okay, but, but you're not the word of God. Well, why do you believe it's the word of God? Because it says it's the word of God. So now we're right back to the beginning. And a lot of us, we place our faith there. And I get it. I understand it. Bear with me here for just a moment. It's circular. And you might say, but that's just man's thinking. I only focus on the word of God. Okay, we'll go there. We'll look at the words of Jesus in John chapter 5. He said, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have, sent, uh, you have sent to John, and he has testified the truth. Jesus is making a very bold statement. Have you noticed that Jesus, people always make this accusation that Jesus never actually considered himself to be the Son of God. You ever heard that? He never claimed to be God. Well, it could be argued that he did, but if he didn't, there's a good reason for it. And that reason is because if he came, based on what he's saying in John 5, if he came and he made that declaration about himself, nobody would have believed it. So what did he do instead? He let other people say it for him. He let John, the Baptist, who was his predecessor, come and say, behold the Lamb of God. When he asked Peter, he said, who do you say that I am? You're the Son of God. When he was accused and said, do you believe that you're the Son of God? He said, you have said correctly. He never made the assertion because he let other people confirm it. Because if I make a testimony about myself, what good is that? But if you make a testimony about me, other people believe it. That's an important thing. So if your only reason for believing the Bi- that the Bible, uh, if your only uh, reason for believing the Bible, for believing the Bible is that the Bible says you should, keep in mind that that wouldn't have even been a good enough reason for Jesus. So let's dive in a little bit further. Why am I kind of harping in on that? And here, here, here's my issue. I think that it comes from a good heart. I think it comes from a, a good place. But here's what I see happen more often than not, especially with our young people. We teach them that form of blind faith. Just believe it because the Bible says it. Then they go off to secular colleges. And they go into classrooms with people who are much more educated than you and I. They go into classrooms and they are challenged with this idea that says, did you know that there are 750,000 textual variants in the text and there's really no way to know if it's true, which is true, by the way. Or they might say something about, we don't even have the original manuscript, so there's no way to know that, that, uh, that, that what was written is actually accurate, which is true, by the way. And then they might say something like, well, the Catholic Church had, uh, had access to all of the manuscripts at once, and they changed things, so there's really no way to know. That's not true, by the way. We'll get to that. But if they're not prepared, because all we ever taught them to do is to believe it blindly, they're not prepared, and then we wonder why their faith is shaken, and they run away from the church. Because a brilliant person who has better answers than we do gave them reason to doubt. So that's where we get to external validation, external evidence. We're going to dive into that a little bit. We'll start with the Old Testament. Good place to start, the first part of the Bible. Reliability of the Old Testament. How do we know it's true? How do we know that it's accurate? When the Bible, when the Old Testament was copied, which is how they they would preserve it. They obviously didn't have a copier machine, so they would handwrite it. They had strict rules, such as the type of parchment that was used, the number of lines that were written, the color of ink, the manner of revision. When a manuscript began to show wear, the Jews reverently buried the manuscript. Before the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we'll talk talk about in a moment, the oldest scrolls were dated as late as 900 AD. That's 900 years after Christ. Seems a little sketchy, doesn't it? How do we know that this is real? How do we know it's true? Well, beginning in the days of Ezra, Ezra was one of the uh, Jewish leaders who came back from exile, 
and he, him and Nehemiah set up walls. Ezra, uh, Ezra attempted to reset up the religious system, and they began to copy down to preserve the Old Testament manuscripts. This tradition became known as the Masoretic tradition, and certain scribes were uh, charged with this, uh, this task. They would take what they had at that time, those original manuscripts, it was probably they had pieces that they would put together. It might have been an oral tradition, stories that were passed down. They got together, they wrote out a manuscript, and then year after year, generation after generation, they would copy it. And it wasn't just one of those things where uh, they they just kind of did it uh, off the cuff. It was painstaking, and it was scrutinized. Now, here's an example of how scrutinized it was. They had a tradition that one particular letter, they knew that it appeared in the entire Old Testament 42,377 times. So when they would copy it, they would go back and they would count that letter in the manuscript. Every single one of them. And, they came, and if they came up short one, they would throw it out and start over. Because they knew that the manuscript was not accurate. If it was accurate, then they would proof it. They would go through it. If a word or statement was believed to be incorrect, mistakes happen, they would leave it, but they would add a marginal notation with a suggested correction. They also added vowel pointings. The Hebrew language is only consonants. So you had to have an oral tradition unless they gave vowel pointings so it could actually be read and understood by future generations. Now, how do, what, are, what are the sources here? How, we, we mentioned before that the, 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 the earliest that we had were 900 A.D., Since the Jews would bury manuscripts, it became very difficult to ensure that the manuscripts hadn't changed over time. We didn't have the ones that were earlier, right? Especially since the earliest manuscript dated 900 years after Christ. But in 1946, in a system of caves in the Judean desert, 972 of these retired scrolls were discovered, known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some of them dating back as early as 125 BC. That's a thousand years earlier than the ones that we had. What was determined was that there were no significant differences between the earliest manuscripts and the most recent. A 1,000 years of transcription without any significant error. Another source of reliability was the Samaritan Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. The Samaritans were a half-breed. They were half-Jewish and they... uh, They were the offspring of other tribes that was very much uh, considered a a bad thing to the Jewish people. They were outcasted, but they still wanted to worship in rebellion to the Israelites. So they would worship, and somehow they got their hands on the first five books of the Bible. They copied it themselves, and that had been copied. That was known as the Samaritan uh, Pentateuch. That was found, and it dates back to the 4th century B.C. This text was separate from the Masoretic text. Though there were 6,000 differences with that text... Most of them were minor and related to spelling and grammar. So you're talking about a thousand years of tradition over here with no major changes. Then a separate source with no major changes. That's pretty remarkable. Another source between 250 and 150 BC, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. This was known as the Greek Septuagint. It was translated to accommodate the Jews who had lost the Hebrew language. While we do not have the manuscripts that they used to translate, we know that they would have dated 1,000 years earlier than the other manuscripts that we have. This means we can know with a reasonable level of of certainty what the manuscript said nearly 2,000 years before Christ. Keep in mind that most scholars believe that Adam was created 4,000 years before Christ. Now, put this into perspective. Who's familiar with Homer's Odyssey or the Iliad? Ancient text, you might have read it in high school. That text, nobody has issues with it. We believe that what is there, Homer wrote it, right? There's really no no question about it. But the earliest complete manuscript dates to the 10th century AD. That's roughly 15 years between when it was written and when the earliest complete manuscript that we have access to today. If the original manuscripts of the Old Testament were written during the time of Ezra, as tradition holds, we can date them at 350 B.C. The Septuagint was translated between 250 and 150 B.C., meaning that the gap between the originals and our earliest manuscripts that we have now is between 100 and 150 years. From the time the originals were written to the, uh, to the manuscripts we have, 100 to 150 years. With the Odyssey and the Iliad, 1,500. That means the, that the Bible, there is 15 times less of a gap between those originals. We may not have the originals, and I would argue that we don't have any of the originals of a book that old, but the gap between it is so much smaller than another book, and nobody questions whether or not the uh, Odyssey or Iliad are relevant. 
or uh, reliable. We don't question those things. We can know within a certain degree of reasonable process that what we read in the Old Testament is accurate and true to what was originally written. Now, the reliability of the New Testament. Like the Old Testament, we don't have any of the original manuscripts. However, there are more than 5,000 manuscripts that we do have that contain either parts or all of the New Testament. Some of these manuscripts date back as early as 200 AD. That's 200 years before Christ. Keep in mind that the last of the apostles died in 99 AD. It's about 100 years between when the last apostle died and when we have access to, to manuscripts. The most incredible reality of the New Testament is that until the collection of the biblical canon, and the canon is when all those books were brought together in the 300 AD, the Bible was not a collected whole. These manuscripts were isolated projects. For example, the gospel accounts were firsthand testimony and scholarly treatments of the life and ministry of Jesus. The book of Acts was a documentary of the early church. The rest were letters by the apostles to the churches that addressed certain topics. This was not, okay, we're going to get together and put a book together, put together a manual for how to do church. And here you go, Ephesus. And here you go, uh, church over here. That's not how it worked. These were scattered around. Not only were they scattered around, but the way they operated is that one would go to one church and somebody might want to keep a copy. For example, the book of Ephesians was intended to be a circular letter. It was supposed to go to all the churches, and it most likely did. When it went to a church, they might have said, oh, this is good. We want to get a copy of this. So they went to the Xerox machine, put it, no, of course not. They had to painstakingly, by hand, write it out. And then somebody else might say, oh, I'd, I'd like a copy of that. Okay, well, why don't you copy my copy? And why don't you copy my copy? And so we have copies all across the known world of these manuscripts. And how many of you know that if that were the case, there would be errors? You're talking about rooms with no electricity, people copying in the dark. It's possible that they might skip a line. There are errors among those manuscripts, and rightfully so. But within a reasonable amount of similarity, we, we found a lot of these manuscripts, and they are so close together. The things that are in there, the differences, they don't, make a, they, they don't have any bearing on the message that's present. That's remarkable. Now, over the years, minor errors occurred. Some of these were accidental, and yes, some were intentional. We're, we'll talk about that. These may have included spelling errors, grammatical errors, and even some scribal errors, just something that somebody would... Uh, would accidentally do. As the church became more unified, scholars and monks would have worked to collect these manuscript copies and formalize them. If they felt that the theology or the message was, uh, was an error, they might make changes, but they would make marginal notes. Um, over time, these, these, uh, books, uh, these copies were collected into books called a codex, some of which were kept and maintained by the Vatican. Now, the idea is that the Vatican uh, eventually scooped all these up. If you ever watched the Da Vinci Code, that's, and that is a real theory that some people have, that uh, Constantine went and scooped up all the manuscripts, he got them together, burnt them after they copied them, and they made changes how they wanted. It would have been impossible. We are still finding new manuscripts today, and they coincide with what we have. There's no way that could have happened, and that's why what we have in the inspiration tradition is better than dictation, because the Bible was never in one person's hand at any given time. In fact, until recently, when we've been able to digitize these copies, we didn't even know where they all were. No one person could identify where they all were, but they don't differ in a great, in great fashion. Um, so they were collected. Now, you may have heard the argument, I mentioned that, about the, the Catholic Church, but there's really no way that could have happened. So how do we get the Bible that we have today, Right? Throughout the years, the Roman Catholic Church emerged, and Latin became the language of the church. The Roman Catholic Church is now in Rome. They speak Latin. They don't speak Greek. In fact, there's another church known as the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and, uh, and, and that speaks Greek, and Romans don't want anything to do with that. So they kind of stop using it. They translate the Greek into Latin known as the Vulgate. That becomes the Bible that they use, and you better not touch the Vulgate. Because if you do, and historically said, you're probably going to be burned at the stake. William Tyndale attempted to translate the Bible into English. He did it, and he was burnt at the stake. Martin Luther didn't translate the Bible into German until after he left the church, because that was a big issue. But it happened, and as, uh, as the Reformation took 
took form. The Bible became translated into all kinds of languages. The invention of the printing press became a big deal because now I can start just getting copies out like nothing. I don't have to write them by hand anymore. It takes some time, but not nearly as much time as it used to. A lot of people, they take issue with the study of the Bible because I just admitted that there are errors all over these, all over these texts. And now it, it becomes really questionable. Can we really know that what we have is reliable? It's all over the board, right? Most people want a standard. And that's why a lot of people, they gravitate toward the King James Version because they believe the misconception is that it is a much more uh, complete version. It's a much more accurate version. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. I'll see if you still hold to that view. But as the Bible began to, uh, well, in, in the 1500s, um, there was a scholar named uh, Desid- Desiderius Erasmus. He set out to compile the manuscripts. He wanted to have his own Greek translation. He had already done this with the Latin. And so he, he began to do this. The problem was there weren't many manuscripts available at the time. In fact, most scholars believe he had five, five of them. Now, he, had to, he got to the end of Revelation and realized that he didn't have enough information to complete the last part of Revelation 22. He searched all over. He went to several libraries. Nobody had it. He did have a Latin commentary on Revelation that had the Greek text written in it. So he went through and he copied all the Greek text in it to put together the final part of of Revelation. And in fact, it was the whole book, Revelation. You, You may not know this, but Revelation actually had a hard time getting into the Bible because there were so few uh, manuscripts. In fact, when it was debated over, many, many people did not think it was Scripture. Many people didn't, and there was a long tradition that did not feel like it should be in, uh, allowed in the canon at all. Erasmus was one of those people. And so he, he knew that it was considered, that most people considered it Scripture, so he knew it had to be in there, but he didn't treat it very well at all. And so he didn't care that he was using a commentary, and it gets worse. He gets to the end of Revelation in that commentary, and he realizes that the last five pages have fallen out. He doesn't have the end of Revelation 22. So he takes his Latin edition and translates it back into Greek. And for the first time ever, there were Greek words that had never been seen in a New Testament manuscript before. Later, he, uh, he decided to fix it. And he knew of someone else who had done something similar that had done a Greek translation. And so he told his publisher, go get theirs and just switch them out. The problem was they had used his. So that is, that's kind of where we are. Now, there were other people doing this, two men in particular, one man named Stephanus and another named Theodore Beza. They also had Greek, Greek, uh, Greek editions. Collectively, between Beza uh, Stephanus and Erasmus, they had access to about 12 to 25 manuscripts that they used. Now, in 1604, King James I of England commissioned a new tra- translation of the Bible. Now, truthfully, he did this for one reason, and it was to gain power in the kingdom and to gain power in the Church of England. That's why he did it. If he could have his name, it, does it not bother anybody that it, it, it's an it's a English king on the side of it? That's always bothered me. He did it to gain power in the church. He commissioned these scholars, and what they chose to do is to use three Greek texts, Erasmus, uh, Beza, and Stephanus, these three texts that they used. Now, we already know that there were issues with Erasmus. We just talked about that. Chances are there were issues with the others too. They did this, though, and they would just use academic resources to try to figure out, okay, where, where, where should we go back? They only had access to those manuscripts. They didn't go find more. So the King James Version was based on 12 to 25 manuscripts. That's all. So we talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls and how they found more information. And we found many, many more manuscripts, the 5,000 that we talked about. Scholars eventually began to realize, okay, I think it's time that we kind of revise the English translation a little bit. And so they, uh, they, with what they had access to starting in 1898, a revised and it was revised as new manuscripts were discovered, the Nestle Allen text is now on its 28th revision and is based on over 5,000 partial and complete New Testament manuscripts and cross-referenced with thousands of Latin and Coptic, two languages that it was translated into, so it was cross-referenced to make sure it was accurate. Many of these dated far earlier than those used by the King James translators, making the total number of manuscripts evidenced in the modern translation 25,000 
as compared to the 12 to 25 manuscripts used by the King James translators. Now, the Nestle Island text is the base text used for the translation of many of the modern-day translations. The NIV, the NASB, the ESV. Now, I will say very clearly, not every modern translation should be trusted. They're not all created equal. Some of them are intended to distort. But for the most part, those three that I mentioned for sure, they are based on that 25,000 different manuscripts. Why, Why am I saying this? You may have heard that the, king, that the modern translations are missing verses. They're missing verses. They were taken out of the King James. Who would do that, right? Specifically, Matthew 17, Matthew 18, Matthew 23, Mark 7, Mark 9, Mark 11, Mark 15, and Luke 17, just to name a few. And that would seem significant, wouldn't it? And that's why many people deny that those are inspired and they focus on the King James. But... Remember that the manuscripts used for the modern translations, the 25,000, were dated much earlier than the 12 to 25 used in the King James, uh, meaning they were closer to the originals. As scholars researched, they discovered that the earliest known manuscripts did not include these passages. Now, I've often heard it said, quoted Revelation 22, if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away this person and he share in the tree of life, right? Don't take it away. But the verse right before that says, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described. It works both ways. So why would they add it? Well, it's hard to know. It could have been that something was written as commentary, and a scholar along the line thought it was scripture, so they added it in. Or it could have been that maybe there was an oral tradition that was passed down, and somehow it got mishandled. Or, let's just admit it, it could have been somebody who wanted to support their own theological view, so they changed it. That's very possible. But what we do know is that the earliest known manuscripts did not include these texts. Um, Now, it's hard to say why they did it, but by God's providence, we have access to earlier manuscripts, and we're able to determine that these verses were not removed by modern translations, but rather added by those who copied the manuscripts that were then used for the King James. Now, if you've read your King James, uh, if you do read the King James, look up these verses that I just mentioned, or any of them that you know, Go to the bottom of the page, and it's going to say something to the effect of some manuscripts do not contain. These notes date all the way back to the original translators, which means they knew of the, con- of the controversy, and they did it anyway. So just keep that in mind. What's the conclusion? Those translations that seek to present the text as it would have been presented in the original through serious study of the available materials are reliable and can be determined to be miraculously close, if not exact, to the original manuscripts of the Bible. Those include most of the modern translations, the NIV, NASB, NSV, for example, and since these discrepancies in the King James do not greatly impact the message of Scripture, the King James is reliable as well. I'm saying that we do know that this is what was written. This is what was said. This is what was stated. We know that. So when young people go to college, we don't have to say, well, I just believe it because the Bible says I should. No, there is external evidence. There is plenty of reason and proof and answers to those questions that those professors are going to bring up. We don't have to accept it blindly. So is the Bible relevant today? And I would say that depends on how you use it. Now, we started out talking about the Bible being inspired and errant, infallible, and let me explicitly state, I believe that to be true. But what does that really mean? Remember that many of the early church fathers and reformers did not believe that inspiration meant that every detail was without error. And even the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy stated that inerrancy implies only to the original manuscript, which we no longer have. Now, we've determined that we can, deter- that we can know within a very close uh, degree of certainty that we do know what the original manuscript said. Something to be considered is that between the manuscripts available, there are between 200,000 and 750,000 textual variants. That's where the manuscripts differ. However, all New Testament scholars, that includes the non-Christian ones, and yes, there are non-Christian New Testament scholars, believe that or not, would agree that of those variants, none of them have any theological implication. None of them change the message of the Bible, the basic message. That tells me one thing, that there is a lot in the Bible that can be considered secondary to many of the overarching themes. Let's talk about that a little bit more. 
even in the areas where the manuscripts are consistent, the Council on Biblical Inerrancy made it clear that the doctrine of inerrancy did not call for a blind, literal impression, but that the Bible should be interpreted as it's presented. History is history. So that means we need to interpret history as history. And how many of you know that in the ancient days, they did not record history the way that we do? We record history on a documentary, uh, doc, documentary format. We try to get the timeline exact. Ancient forms of history was not so much worried about that. They told a story that pointed to something outside of the story. So when we read the Old Testament text, it really doesn't matter if these are accurate. And I I believe they are. I believe that we have a lot of reason to, to believe that they are accurate. But it doesn't mean that they have to be in order for them to serve their purpose. It doesn't mean it's not true. But it does mean that the account may not be altogether literal. The story is told the way that it is to point toward a purpose. The Bible was not intended to be a history book. Many Christians spend their lives and careers attempting to debate the scientific accuracy of the creation account and the flood. And whether or not these are literal descriptions or not, Genesis was not meant to be a science book. Even after the Enlightenment in the 1600s, the validity of our faith has been challenged. And as a result, the activity of the church has shifted from preaching the gospel to defending our faith. We feel like in order to be a good Christian, we either have to blindly ignore what the atheists are saying, or we have to be ready for a defense constantly. And yes, there's scriptural basis for that. But I think the way that we do it is that we're constantly on a defense. We have to prove ourselves. We have to prove what we're doing. We feel like being a good Christian... is is just accepting and placing our faith in the Bible as being 100% accurate, valid, and and, and literal, whether either blindly or for good reason. In recent years, this has become a must for Orthodox Christianity. If you don't take it literally, then you are a progressive liberal Christian who trusts science over the Word of God. That's what often gets accused. This view has led scholars to make statements such as this. This is a direct quote from a commentary that I read. Since Paul draws an analogy between Adam and Christ in Romans 5, Adam must be historical, otherwise the analogy breaks down. Well, what about Jesus' use of parables? Are we intended to believe that every single story that Jesus told was actually something that happened? I don't think so, and it doesn't matter if they were. What they pointed toward was something far more important than the illustration itself or this statement that I hope really sits with you. And and really, I hope it keeps you up at night because it, it should bother you. This is what a scholar says. The obvious conclusion, if the Bible cannot be trusted in matters of chronology, history, and geography, it cannot be trusted in the message of salvation. Can I tell you that's an absurd statement? Not only is it absurd, but it is a very Western and very modern way to think. And I firmly believe that no apostle, no church father, no uh, reformer would have agreed with it. I believe that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. I believe that the Holy Spirit moved upon godly men to write the message that God intended for them to write. Working within their style and their culture to produce an account of God working in history to bring about his plan of redemption. Now, while I do believe that there is strong evidence to suggest that the specific details in the Bible are verifiable and accurate, even where modern science contradicts, I do not believe it's a battle worth fighting. Nor do I believe that we should waste our time debating it. Unlike many of the conservative scholars today, I do believe that the Bible has, I do not believe that the Bible has to be historically, scientifically accurate in order for the message of salvation to be true. If someone were to come in here today and they were to give verifiable evidence that what we believe in the Bible isn't true, what would happen to your faith? Would it be shaken? Would it fall apart? I can say with absolute certainty that mine would not because my faith was never in this book to begin with. It was in the person that the book points to. Now, I may know about Jesus, and this is where I'm going to start preaching a little bit. I may know about Jesus because of this book. I may get, a, get the most clear picture of Jesus because of this book. And I may have my, strength, my, my faith strengthened because of this book. But at the end of the day, my faith is in Jesus Christ because I've had an encounter with him. And I'm not the same person that I would have been if I hadn't. This book is useful, but it is not where my faith is placed. And I don't have to believe that every single little detail in it is 100% literal. I don't have to debate it and defend it because that's not where my faith rests. Do you know that the early church didn't have this? 
You know, t- today most of discipleship is come on in and, and, and let's convince you of what we believe based on the book. And then we're going to study the book so you can learn how to live. And then we're going to teach you how to, how to defend it in case anybody ever wants to argue with you. Can I tell you, that is not the way the early church operated. That is not what discipleship in the early church looked like. The apostles went out and gave their first-hand testimony of the life, teaching, death, burial, and resurrection of a man named Jesus Christ. And they put it in front of the, those individuals and let the Holy Spirit do his work whether they were going to believe it or not. And then as they did believe it, they began sharing testimonies about what God was doing in their life. And other people saw it. And then they wanted to be a part of this. And yes, at some point, they began to kind of drift off. And the apostles had to write letters to the church to address specific issues, which is where we get this book today. It is useful. It is good for training and teaching and training in righteousness. Absolutely. But my faith isn't here. There was a man named Paul who had studied scriptures. He knew them better than you or I could ever hope to. But he didn't have faith in Jesus. And it wasn't until he had an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus that his eyes were opened. He received a revelation that allowed him to reread the scriptures and eventually make a statement in 1 Corinthians 2. He said, for I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus and him crucified. He's not alone. In Luke 24, there were two men on the road to Damascus. They unknowingly encountered Jesus. Jesus And they began to tell him, it's so sad that our teachers died. And Jesus says, oh foolish ones, how slow are your hearts to believe all the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was written in the scriptures about himself. These men had spent their lives being taught the scriptures, yet Jesus went back to the beginning and showed them how they had just been studying the book and that wasn't enough because they had missed him let's go back to our text earlier in john 5 but the testimony i have is greater than the testimony of john for the works which the father have given me to accomplish the very works that i do testify about me that the father has sent me and the father who sent me he testifies about me you have neither heard the, heard his voice at any time nor seen his form also you do not have his words remaining in you because you do not believe him who he has sent. You examine the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is those scriptures that testify about me. Jesus is saying, you've spent your entire life reading the book and you've missed it. Even though the Jews had the scriptures, they didn't know what they were, they didn't know what the scriptures were about. Instead, they created a religion that was focused on earning favor with God. We do the same thing. It's interesting to me that any time that the church has ever strayed, it's always been back to how can we earn penance with God? Always. But the gospel is you can't. You can't do it. So is the Bible relevant for today? My answer is a resounding yes, but maybe not in the way that you thought it would be. What I've observed is that the modern day churches use the Bible in three primary ways. As a basis for faith, as an instruction manual, and as fuel for the latest debate. I've noticed that many church discipleship programs are something like going through and studying this. That's not how it would have happened. They had faith because they were faced with the testimony and they were compelled that it was true. As the church grew, the the apostles did send letters to encourage. Let me be clear that you cannot know God from Bible study. You cannot grow spiritually from Bible study if you're focusing on the details. You can know about God and you can grow intellectually, but the only way you can grow spiritually is to realize the what the details point to, or better yet, the the who. Who the details point to. If you're reading this book to live better, to look more like Jesus, if you're working hard to apply what it teaches, then I'm sorry to say you're wasting your time. Because if anything this book teaches us, it's that you can't do it. You can't just apply it. Look what the Jewish people did. They tried to apply it, and they failed. Anytime we try to be better people, I'm reading this book so that I can be the best version of myself. No, it doesn't work that way. Christianity is not about becoming a better person. It's about being transformed when we focus on Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. Oftentimes, we go through the stories in Scripture, and we read it, and we say, oh, this is really good. Man, uh, uh, Daniel in the lion's den. Oh, I know what that's, that's telling me, that God is going to shut the mouth of the lion in my den. No, it's not. 
That book is talking about a man who should have been devoured by lions, but in God's providence, he was saved for one purpose. That purpose that he would be elevated to the top of the Babylonian government so that whatever he said would be preserved. And he would have the opportunity to train a group of scribes underneath him who generation after generation after generation would study his prophecies. And one day, several of them would set out to a little town in Bethlehem because his prophecies were about a boy who was going to be born under a star. They went out and they took gifts to that boy and they prophesied that he was the king of the Jews. They gave him gifts that were kingly. They gave him gifts that prophesied his death, burial, and resurrection. That is what Daniel and the lion's den is about. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God preserving his word. And his word is Jesus Christ. And the prophecies about him through centuries and centuries and centuries. And I'm sorry, but if you're looking for the moral of the story, go read Aesop's fables because that's not here. The moral of the story is that you can't do it on your own. And there's only one who can. You might say, but what about 2 Timothy 3.16? It's good for rebuking, correcting, and training. Sure, but let's look at the context. Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you have those from who you learned it and how from your infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The bulk of the New Testament letters are written to the church They're being corrected. But keep in mind that this was a church that had already been established. The church met and worshipped because of the testimony of Jesus Christ that had been delivered to them by the apostles and their witness of his transformational power. When the church began to drift, the apostles would write the letters of correction that brought them back to the starting point, holding them accountable to the witness of Jesus Christ. It all pointed to him and it all goes back to him. That's why this book exists. Today... The Bible is our most reliable source of that testimony. But the testimony is not where we place our faith. We place our faith in the one who is being testified. The Bible is relevant in its ability to hold us accountable to our witness in Jesus Christ. So absolutely the Bible teaches, it rebukes, it corrects, and it trains in righteousness. But the only way it can do that is if we become wise in salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible is less a how-to and it's more of a set of guide rails to keep us focused on Him. One of the big accusations of the postmodern world uh, poses against Scripture is that it was just written by a bunch of men. And in short answer, that's true. But we believe, as stated in 1 Peter 1.21, for prophecy never had its origin in human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No other book of antiquity has survived more time, more hands, more scrutiny than the Bible. More than 25,000 copies exist today of those manuscripts. And for, the, for most of history, those manuscripts could not be located by any one person at any given time. While we don't have the originals, we have copies that date within 100 years of the originals, something that cannot be said of any other work. It's nothing short of a miracle that not only can we determine with a reasonable level of, of certainty that that what we have in our version of the Bible today is the same as what was originally written. We can identify a messianic thread that starts in the beginning and is carried out, being unveiled and revealed until the very last page by over 40 men spanning nearly 1,600 years, and many of which never met each other, many of which had no knowledge of how their work would be used in the future, yet every prophecy and every story is fulfilled in the words of Jesus when he said, it is finished. The Bible is relevant because its timeless truths are consistent from cover to cover. I said at the beginning I wasn't going to preach, and I, I think I did. But you can't help it. Because this book and who it points to is true. It's reliable and it's relevant. But it's only as relevant as the one it points to. I know a lot of people who spend a lot of time studying Scripture. And it doesn't do anything for them. Because I can intellectually grasp what this book says and completely miss the heart transformation that it brings. I am 100% pro Bible study. Don't get me wrong. 
But if we're not studying to find him, then what's the point? So tonight, my invitation is this. If this information is new to you, then I pray that, that you wouldn't take my word for it. Search it out. I know that the, the, the blind faith approach is often because we don't know where to start. We don't know where to go. And maybe we just don't have time. And I get it. I had the luxury of being able to spend 10 years in Bible college and seminary. Not everyone has that. I, I understand that. That's why the, the more important thing is to find Jesus in it. But I do encourage you, if you can, study this out. I'd love to talk to you about it. I love to talk about this. My wife would enjoy a break from the conversation sometimes. You know, so, so hit me up in the office sometime. We'll talk about it. I'd love to. And trust me, we're only hitting the tip of the iceberg here tonight. But more importantly, I, my prayer is that you would not put your faith here. Because if you do, then what's going to begin to happen is that your faith will ebb and flow on every new theory that comes out. Every challenge, every time that somebody has uh, some different evidence... My faith isn't there. My faith is in the one who stands firm from beginning, to be, from beginning to end, the Alpha and the Omega, the one that this book points to. So tonight my invitation is this. The next time you pick up your Bible, dig deeper. Don't look for how it applies to me. Find Jesus in it. Because what this book does more than anything else is it strengthens my faith. And when my faith is strengthened, whenever I look at the story of Daniel in the lion's den and I see the way that God has preserved his message, his redemptive plan through the years, I am empowered to go after the one who he was preserving, the one who can transform me. And I'll begin to see those fruit popping up as I focus my eyes on him. Not just trying to be a better person. Well, there's no point in that. So tonight as we close in prayer, I invite you to dig deeper, to look beyond the text, look into what the text actually is pointing toward. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word and your word being Jesus Christ. Your word being the, the perfect revelation of you and the person of Jesus Christ that this book points to. I pray that you would help us not to idolize the, 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 the message the, the method, I should say. Idolize the method over the message. We worship you. And we thank you that you have given us a book that we can trust, that we can read, that we can know that it is, it, it is God-breathed, it is inspired. But more importantly, I pray that every time we open it, we would find you in the pages. That just like Paul, you would remove the scales from our eyes and you would help us to begin to see that studying the book isn't enough. We've got to find the person. Jesus, I thank you for every person in this room and, and those who are, are listening online and maybe looking at watching in the future. And I pray that they would feel the invitation today to go deeper in their faith than ever before. To not just focus on Bible study, not just focus on becoming a better person, but focus on building their relationship with you and allowing this book to strengthen their faith in you and you alone. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all. Uh, hopefully we'll see you on Sunday. Until then, have a great evening.